Hello and welcome to the You're an Asset podcast. I'm your host, Casey the Dollar, and on this podcast, we find out who is an asset in the financial industry and who is just an ass. It is. The BMIs are stupid. On today's episode, I have a very special guest for you all. I cannot wait to have a conversation with him today. And without further ado, please welcome Mr. Pritpal Noreng. And hopefully I said your name right, Pritpal? Correct? You got it. You got it. Amazing. Amazing. How are you doing? Doing very good. And we most definitely did not practice the name. <laughs> we did not practice the name. I practiced on my own without confirming with you. So I was just hoping I was doing well. Ripple, you and I have gotten to chat before outside of the show, so this is not our first conversation, but I do believe it's going to be a good one. But I am going to put you to the test just because, because I feel like you're up for it. Before we get started with all of that, I would love to have the listeners know where you're from, how old you are, and how long have you had your insurance license? The how old I am question always gets to me because the, the beard makes it look a little bit older, right? But the, I just turned 25. Uh, very recently, I got my insurance license pretty much in t- right when I turned 18, 19. So I'm going on about five and a half years now of being Amazing. licensed. Uh, started out my career at one of the three letter IMOs, as a lot of us uh, usually get, for the lack of a better word, roped into first. Although that's okay. That brought me in the industry. Uh, right after college, I double majored in accounting and finance. And uh, I was going to become the C- CPA of the family. And uh, Reason for that being is, you know, that's the next best thing when your parents want you to be a doctor. And then if you're not going to do that, then you got to jump to lawyer. And then if you're not going to do that, then, you know, accountancy is the way to go. Turned out very quickly that it was too small of a world in the accounting side of things. Just overall too blocked away in terms of, at least I felt, uh, the way the industry, the way the corporations work. Uh, I was introduced to insurance at that time. It was a very part-time thing. Uh, Closed, you know, my neighbors as clients and things like that. But we'll get to that. But anyways, so long story short. I did take a corporate tax job right out of college. Okay. Um, I did about one years of work towards the CPA. Took a leap of faith after having a discussion with a marketing professor. I asked, I told her a little bit about what's going on. And she said, well, I see your face light up when you talk about your insurance business. But when you talk about accounting, it's like, you know, you close off. And that was the, that was kind of the cherry on top for me to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to take a leap of faith. I quit the corporate tax job uh, about eight months in. And uh, wow. took a leap of faith full time into insurance, and that was about twenty twenty one. Wow, amazing! So you've had a lot of experience in the financial industry: insurance, accounting, taxes, CPA. Mm-hmm. And you like insurance the best? Why? Why is that? I feel like that answer's changed over time. Don't get me wrong; we all started it because it's a lucrative business, right? Or at least that's yeah. how I felt at the beginning. Over time, it became something that when I, because in the short five and a half years, I've already done a couple of death claims and a couple of living benefit claims. And my very first one was my own CPA who had passed away. She she was one of my first clients originally. Wow. She didn't know three years into the policy she's going to pass away, obviously. And pre-COVID, a lot of this stuff was still being done by hand. So even the delivery of the check was all done by hand at that time. Uh, in terms of getting checks in the mail and all that, that started after COVID, the, the no medicals and things like mm-hmm. that. So I've seen the pre-COVID side of this business. And to answer your question, 
that's where I'm at now. That seeing that I could hand a check to somebody and it actually genuinely is something that they needed. Or for this lady, it was a very simple thing. She unintentionally paid for her grandkids' college without realizing that's what it was going to be for. That's right? amazing. So that that's why I stick around. It's, it's doing okay. these types of things. So you're a helper. In this industry, you have to be. Yeah. Any, any service industry, right? Anything yeah. that doesn't have a physical product, you got to have a mindset that I'm genuinely accomplishing something. Mm-hmm. Because the agent side of this industry, I don't know if people realize, it does cause a lot of burnout for a lot of people. The the level of conversations you're having is sensitive topics. Money comes into the play. Budgeting comes into play. After all, you're selling a piece of paper, right? You're selling yeah. a promise that's like, hey, this is something you're going to be able to use in the future with the occurrence of whatever event. But that's that should answer your question. That That's why I choose to stick around. That's probably one of the most genuine answers that anyone's ever given me, Purple. I mean, I, I mean, I already, I already knew this. I, I think you're an amazing <laughs> guy. Um, I, I would love to, to know more about like your experience with that because I've, I've not actually had anyone talk about being able to physically give someone, hey, here is your death benefit. Hey, here is the living benefits money that you know you have been paying for. And obviously, the, the interaction itself, like being able to do that, was very heartwarming and it felt good but as far as like that process goes and the way that the the clients reacted i mean what were they getting the living benefits for um and the beneficiary of the person that died if if you don't mind expanding a little bit on those experiences i'd love in terms of the beneficiary it was a i believe it was a three hundred thousand dollar face amount that we had done it had grown about 30k in cash value over three years or so it was not a correctly designed policy. Back then, I was selling at CVAD, increasing you know, what I was told to do at that point. But the death yeah. benefit still pays out regardless. She unfortunately passed away. It was due to COVID. It had just started. She was in the hospital. She came out. Uh, after coming out of the hospital, two days later is when she passed away. The way it worked, and this is, I feel like, going to give an even bigger insight. I feel like a lot of people just aren't even educated on how this works. Um, the process, the claims process. Yeah. The way it started was... I hadn't found out that she had passed away yet. Almost two weeks had already gone by. There just wasn't enough of a proper notice yet. This is going to be on the client, by the way, right? Um, You want to have something what I call like a dead box or a death box, right? It sounds kind of dark, but essentially leave behind all your documentation to somebody, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe update this every year because what happened in this lady's case is her one of her daughter's cousins who actually came, approached me, who happens to be an insurance insurance agent herself in the PNC world. He said, hey... By the way, my mother passed away and I know she had a policy with you. And I said, okay, <laughs> she did. She most definitely did. I went and looked at it. It was still active, right? The premium has still been paid for that month. So by the way, when a claims process can be started by an agent or the client or somebody of the client. So I started the claims process. After that, it sent the forms to the daughter who was one of the beneficiaries at that time, which she didn't even know. This is why the death box is important, right? Yeah. Have the daughter know or have your beneficiaries know that they're beneficiaries on your policy. They filled out the fame identity verification, notarization, all that goes to the company. It took about four and a half weeks for the check to come in uh, to the mail to my office. At that time, uh, we were able to deliver the check. She had split it into three beneficiaries, her three children, who by this time had children also, right? That's what I meant by she unintentionally paid for their grandkids' college mm. without realizing. So each person mm. got about 110K or so. Uh, there were three separate checks, three separate identity verifications. And I don't mean to interrupt you, Purple, but I just want to reiterate what you just said, that the death benefit was 300000 There was a $30,000 cash value, and the client got the 30000 correct, and the three hundred grand, 
which would prove Dave Ramsey wrong, right? (laughs) I just want to make sure that everyone heard this. I agree. Right? It's the structure. structure. At that point, we had done an increasing policy. So if it's an increasing policy, both are going to pay out. Did she know that she's going to pass away three years into the policy? No. Right? It gave me proof at a young age. I mean, I was barely, what, 21, 22 at this point, right? That, okay, hey, this stuff works. This is this is real money, right? Yeah. Um, the living benefit stuff is as simple as they say they are. I've done two of those. The way that works is a doctor's note has to be sent into the company. They have a records department specifically. Once it gets there, underwriting happens again all the way through. And as underwriting happens and they diagnose or they confirm the diagnosis, they request an APS and everything again. Mm-hmm. As that gets confirmed, the benefits can get paid out. Those will go directly to the client. Yeah. Dang. Yeah, that's, that's one way to enter the insurance industry. I've been in the industry almost four years. Thank God that I've, I you know, haven't had to do any of that yet for any of my clients. But you know, it's right. coming because that's the industry. And like you said, this industry can be very bleak and dark. People don't realize it because you also said it's a very lucrative in- industry, right? So it's mm-hmm. like hand in hand, like it's very dark. And there's a lot of opportunity. Correct. What a world, what an industry uh, to be in. Do your parents approve of the insurance industry? I'm just curious because you said, you know, I, I understand the culture, right? They want you to be a doctor, a lawyer. So do they like they like what you're doing? I, I still don't think they're fully, fully on board, right? No. I, I think... Um, Part of why I have I have aged the way I have is just some of the family stuff that we've been through. Yeah. Um, it goes it goes pretty far. Yeah, yeah. Point is that's gotten to the point that it just kind of is an industry I need to be in to make things work, right? Because no matter what else I would do, if I've landed in a situation where I need to be able to spend more time with the family and like physical hours, right? Yeah. I can't necessarily continue to work that corporate tax job that I did take home 55, 60 grand a year and a couple of weeks here and there, I'm working 80 hour weeks. So building a business in this industry has definitely been a help. And did you start your business pretty quickly when you got your license? I know you said you worked at a three-letter agency, but how long were you with the three-letter agency before you started your company? Funny enough, I was actually with them until the beginning of this year. I had decided to make the jump, multiple reasons. I had lost a bunch of clients due to lack of carrier support. But the biggest of all was because everything was always fully underwritten and we only had a couple of carriers to write, you couldn't cover all risks, right? And I'm not the person to, to tell a client, sorry, can't get you covered. I'll pray for you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I had I had to definitely leave, open up the horizons and just the overall culture of that previous three-letter company it just wasn't, wasn't fit to do the right thing. Do you mind telling us what three-letter agency you're with? Probably not, but let's just say it starts with a W. Okay. Okay. We, we've talked about them okay. before. I'd love to to talk about what you're saying, that there was not enough products with the company for you to be able to help people. When you say that, can you expand a little bit? Tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that. Originally, when I started in the industry, I was taught that companies and agencies don't really matter. Just, just do the work, right? The business is the apps and helping the people and all that. But I've come to learn now that the agency that you work with, the IMO that you have your contracts with and things like that, that does indeed very much so matter mm-hmm. because that's going to control the type of carriers that you're able to write. And not every carrier is created equal. So to answer your question, uh, why did we have limited options? Uh, this company specifically had an arrangement where they had mm-hmm. certain platinum carriers And they had certain carriers that they would call the bottom of the barrel. And the reason they were the bottom of the barrel is because they were sold through another brokerage. So what that means is we had another middleman of a middleman taking a cut out of it. The agents wouldn't want to sell a product that already they're getting so little paid on 
that they wouldn't want to take another pay cut out of it. And the only reason I'm bringing up pay cuts is because this fits in your question fully. A lot of people at these big three-letter agencies are selling policies the wrong way because they get paid so little commission that they have to chase a higher premium to sell. But back on how this company was doing it, so they had an arrangement with platinum carriers and some not so platinum carriers. And the issue was that the platinum carriers that we would write with wouldn't accept all types of risks, right? At the end of the day, the insurance company is going to take on a certain type of risk, a certain type of client when they wouldn't accept the client due to anything like PTSD or diabetes or whatever. And remember, these companies also don't really teach us to read underwriting guides. So we were just submitting blindly. When they wouldn't accept it, the only other choice you had was another carrier with similar underwriting. You didn't have anywhere to take them. So what do you do with that client who just needs a small burial policy? What do you do with that client who just wants living benefits and they can get it on a term, right? What do you do with that client where, hey, a level LTC policy might actually make sense? I couldn't help these risks. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's the idea that having two different companies and only two different companies' products is not enough to serve an entire society, right? Of people coming at you um, because everybody's situation is unique. And it's something I talk about often just in general, right? That not every person is going to get the same thing. It doesn't work the same for everyone. Everyone has certain needs, certain desires. So if you're only pushing one carrier, one product, you're either ignoring what people want, right? And most likely just after commission or and yeah i mean that's pretty much it you you already know the flagship carrier that they sell transamerica there you go right yeah and i don't mean to you know over country here but there's there's something important that people should know there's nothing wrong with the company right when it's designed correctly there's it's not the terrible right yeah transamerica's got one of the best terms one of the best final expense products out there they're very lenient on underwriting on things like that where this really turns bad is the company's training there's, there's a massive hierarchy in that company that when I came across their business practices, man, where training goes really bad in my opinion is I came across, and please, for any other agents out there listening, don't do this. Essentially, they'll show up to a client's house with a typical $1 million face for a 35-year-old male IUL through that company, obviously. And then when obviously every client's not a 35-year-old male, it's going to be a different, different age group, different health class, all that stuff. What they'll do is they'll readjust the illustration while sitting in front of the client to that person's goal, which goal essentially means, and I'm putting a quotes here, goal essentially means what is your budget to be able to put aside. And you and I both know that that budget then becomes the target premium in that case. And the face amount could be a million. It could be 800,000. It could be 600,000 now. But when I realized that most of the big brand names inside of that company and some of these other three-letter companies, the way they're selling is that they're selling ticking time bombs. Yeah. And the clients just don't know yet. If, if people do not understand yet that you should at least just be concerned, if someone is only showing you Transamerica, you should be concerned. Yeah. Right? It's a different story when they're like, hey, I have this Transamerica term policy and I have this company's term policy and this one. What do you think, right? But if you're right. just being shown Transamerica, you should take this as a red flag immediately. 100%. I know that Transamerica is not a bad company overall. I think I said it like last episode that I wish that I could get a Transamerica policy that was set up correctly. It's not that the product's bad. It's the agents and the way that they train people and it trickles down and the higher ups, they don't care. It's wild. I understand. Clients aren't in the position to ask, hey, what agency do you work for? Right. That's that's just not a thing that clients are going to be able to ask. Yeah. But then I pose the question back to the agent. 
Don't you know what agency you work for? Learn what you got to learn and know what you got to do. And don't get me wrong. Like, I, I don't want to sound like a hypocrite either. My entire first two years that I wrote because I was with that company, I probably wrote some of the worst policies. See, I've had an increasing to this day. I'm still working on fixing them. But how would you have known? I wouldn't have known at all. When you say CVAT and increasing, right? CVAT means cash value accumulation test. And what you want to do instead is the guideline premium. Do you want to give the the differences between those two things why it matters? Yeah, I'll bring it up. Please. My apologies if I'm getting too technical into some of these things. No, no, you're good. You're good. <laughs> I think that most people listening are, they've been listening for a while and they're they're getting good at right. um, understanding the terms and that's why they're here, right? Um, if you have questions about something, there's a comment section down below. For sure. <laughs> the best way I describe it, and you're kind of going to laugh at the analogy, is think of your waist size, right? I'm not telling you, but like, let's say myself, let's say I'm a 32 waist, for example. I really wouldn't look that great in a 40 waist pair of jeans. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that those jeans would fall. Right. <laughs> or I would have to tie them up with some sort of belt or whatever. And I know this is a very picturesque analogy, but no, I like the it. reason I bring it up like this is signing up for a CVAT policy is essentially that if you're not buying the right pair of jeans for yourself, the only time a 40 waist jeans makes sense on you is if you have a 40 waist. That's what CVAT is. It's a way to create a bigger waistline, a bigger rubber band test, as we say, to be able to dump an excess amount of money in there for a short amount of time. Now, the reason you are also saying, and I agree that GPT is done most of the time on IULs, is because most people are not in the situation to dump excess amounts of money for a short period of time into a policy. It's treated more like a long-term vehicle, right? Exactly. The issue with writing a CVAT policy sometimes can be, again, for the majority of people, is when you buy the pants that are that big, you either have to increase your size, right, which we don't want to do, or you have to have it held up by a belt or tie it which in this analogy represents higher cost of insurance and fees, that the only way it's going to remain in place is you have to offset it. So what GPT will do is it will likely make your policy, if you're a 32 waist, probably a 36. So it gives you a little bit more room to put some money in there over a longer period of time, and the jeans are less stretchy. That's how I that's how I kind of explain that. I love this. No, it's amazing. It's amazing. And <laughs> this is so simple for people listening, right? So if you're somebody who's, you know, trying to do heavy research and you're getting illustrations from all kinds of people, that's a new thing for, for you to look for. Was there something when you were working with Transamerica, like did something happen that you had like a holy shit, like I got to get out of here? Or was it like a slowly over time little things were adding up? Oh, man. Crazy you are. <laughs> yeah. So I had a client, uh, one of my original clients, unfortunately, got rated at a table S. Every letter you go down the alphabet, the more expensive your policy gets. And if you know even a little bit about IULs, everybody knows that it's essentially the cost is what matters. The portion of the premium that's the cost is what matters. And that cost will be different depending on age, health, things like that. So this guy got rated at a table F due to his diabetes. And when I saw that the illustration wouldn't even go past 15 years. Fully funded? Uh, not fully funded at that point. It wouldn't go past actually 12 years. And when I had gone and asked my upline about this, I said, hey, something's going on. Yeah. And his only answer was, well, he's, he's just unhealthy, so it's going to be more expensive. So go ahead and deliver it anyway. And he still has coverage and it's permanent. The biggest lies I think we get told is, 
hey, this is a permanent policy. Nothing's going to happen to it. it. It took some time to learn to get to your question. It took some time to learn. It's only permanent if you're making the payments. Mm-hmm. Not permanent just because the client signed up for it. And that's IUL and whole life. Because people like to say, well, whole life is guaranteed. Yeah, not if you don't make your payments. But when you're entering an increasing IUL with the same CVAT arrangement yeah. with a face amount of 250 plus a 250 rider at table F, I mean, you're, it's not going to last. You might as well have bought a term at that point. Yeah. So that's, to answer your question, that's where I learned, hold on. There's a lot more intricacies to this product that I need to know. Yeah. And it set me on just years worth of talking to people like yourself, talking to other people within that company, although that was kind of hard to get by. Um, reading some books and it, it led me to that. And did you end up selling this policy, like putting it through? I had delivered it at that time, yeah. but I had to obviously go back and we canceled the whole thing. Okay. It was, how how fast to, did you cancel it? Uh, the next month. Okay. It, it really set me out the expedition to kind of learn about the products because I had to. Yeah. It showed me industry opinion. It showed me the structure of these things matters more than anything. I didn't want to be that person selling something I didn't know what I was talking about. So when you were with Transamerica, are there people you were working with that are still there? Unfortunately, too many. They don't care. They don't. This company recruits 40,000 people a month. And the reality is just to replace the 40,000 that left the previous month. Too many people are still doing the wrong thing. Um, The latest example I've come across is telling someone to pay the target premium the first month and then lowering to the minimum the next. Unfortunately. What? You yeah. like you saw like a training or you saw somebody speaking on social media? I came across actual policies sold by the same upline when I was there. Oh my, the, okay. The target premium, like your minimum goal amount. If you go under that, you're paying the required minimum. And that only lasts for 20 years. And then you're going to be asked to pay way more money or your policy is going to lapse. Correct. Like why not just sell a term policy? Correct. So the reason they do this is because they companies, so remember in any insurance transaction for anybody listening, there's always three parties, right? You have carriers, you have insurance agencies, and you have agents. Because the amount of money that the carrier pays the agency isn't necessarily disclosed to the agents, the agents are forced to chase a higher premium. It's, it's, it's almost incentivized. Yeah. Now, again, when the agent is writing that premium, Remember, the carrier is going to advance 100% of the premium up front, and it only requires one month of payment. So if the client, let's say in your example, like you said it perfectly, right, the minimum is just the premium to guarantee the coverage for anybody listening, right? If the client pays what we call the target premium just for the first month. Agent gets full commission. But hey, Mr. and Mrs. Client, and this is a real example, a family in Maryland, if they're listening, they know exactly what I'm talking about. They were sold a policy. 28-year-old, $750,000 worth of coverage. Target premium was close to, I believe, 500 bucks, 500 something dollars. But the client had dictated to the agent who wrote it, who I know also, uh, had said, no, my budget's only 250. So the explanation given to them was pay the 500 the first month and then you can lower it to 250. So that's what he's doing. So this guy's been putting $250 a month for the last six months and sees that he's only got $1,900 worth of total policy value, not even surrender value. This client was basically dumping money into a trash can for the last six months. I mean, that's a bare bone example of an agent writing a policy to make the commission the first month. And I'll sum it up with this. Yes, I know too many people doing that. And are you seeing them online? Like, how are you How are you keeping tabs on these people? A reputation like you have and I have about, hey, we want to design policies a certain way and do things that are right by the client. Yeah. 
at these companies, it's frowned upon because that means we have less production. There's a reason those guys are becoming ring earners, hitting six-figure milestones, and I have nothing to show for my work. How do I keep tabs on them? Is they've actually kept up with me. So when it comes around time like this Maryland family that I'm talking about, they approach me. He's like, we remember you used to be on these trainings. Where, where did you go? I said, hey, I left. Hey, can you look at what they wrote for us? Sure. I've come across probably about 11 policies now, just like that, from all the same team that I used to be a part of. What you said is is wild and, I mean, amazing at the same time, because it just proves what multiple other people have said, what I have said, that the people making millions of dollars in the insurance industry are the ones screwing people. The rest of us are making good money and we're able to sleep at night. The other ones might be able to sleep at night. I don't know how. The reason that you see, oh, get your insurance license. You're going to make $20,000 a month. The way that that happens is because you screw people over. Now, you can make good money doing the right thing. But so to hear you say like that you were around and you're you're not getting awards, you're not getting the bonuses, you're not getting highlighted because you're doing the right thing, right? It's so backwards. I think it goes back to the incentive thing, right? It's whatever you're incentivized to do is what you're going to do. Yeah. You and I don't necessarily have to worry about pay anymore. So we're not necessarily incentivized to do things in accordance to that. Because we have our own business. Right. Versus when you're in a company like this and you're incentivized with things like trips and rings and stages and rah-rah and motivation. And if I can do it and so can you. Like when you when you have things like this, which I got sick and tired of hearing, by the way, it's, it just all comes to incentivization. I mean, it's it's a one word answer to your question. The, the upline that I was referring to, he's hitting $850,000 of income. It's compensation models, agencies, things like that. So recruiting. look, recruiting inherently is not bad, right? In the past no. five months, partner and I have built an agency of 72 agents. Wow, that's awesome. I appreciate that. And I say that's awesome to you because other other people, I would not say this is awesome, right? But for you, this is awesome because I know the kind of person that you are and how you're going to train these people and you're going to have eyes on all of that business because you know that that's your brand, that's your image. Funny enough, the reality of this recruitment, actually, most of the people aren't even doing IUL yet. We've brought on like a final expense team, an annuity team. So we're not even there yet. But yes, you're right. As people start to enter in the IUL market, they're still malleable. These are agents that we can train properly from day one, running things like the balance solve, running things like the minimum solve and all this stuff. Like we can go into illustrations and no more is there incentivization of, oh, you're going to have to sell a $400 a month target policy just to make a living. Because that is one of the downsides of this industry that when you're paid on the premiums, companies where they're robbing you, daylight robbery, giving you 20, 30% comps. I mean, you're you're forced to sell something higher. When you you mean, but when you say 20 to 30% comps, you mean like there are agents out there working with some huge insurance company and they're making 20% commission. Correct. So what do they revert to? Well, I'm going to revert to screwing someone over. And like, I get it. It's a hard, it's a hard time in society right now, but this is not helping. It's not helping at all. It's not. There's a reason when we all do our anti-money laundering course, it, well, the first line in the course is literally that that primarily insurance and annuity uh, products get targeted for financial crime. And it's due to payout structures and incentivization structures and things like this. But the reality is this, interview a bunch of agents, interview Mm -hmm. people, see who you vibe with, right? If you can genuinely feel that that person's got your best interests at heart, work with them. If you don't, run the other direction. The best rubric that I give somebody, I don't mean to over-talk you here, but the the best rubric I give somebody is, 
if the first question an agent or an advisor even asks you, even a fiduciary advisor, if the first question they ask you is how much money do you have or how much budget do you have for something, run. I mean, and there's a difference between what is your budget and what do you want to contribute, right? Because I ask people this, what do you want to contribute? You want to contribute $500? Sweet. But what's your budget? You know, like how much can you possibly give me is what's underneath that question. I started with an insurance agency, a small agency. The pitch was, hey, tell your warm market, right? Tell your friends and family. Do you have an extra $250 in your budget that you can put into a tax advantaged account? Oh, man. And I was like, are we going to tell them it's life insurance? No, no, no. Don't, don't tell them it's life insurance. But aren't they going to have to do a medical? Yeah, but we'll just, we'll just wait till later once they're sold on the tax advantages. I lasted four months. I can't believe that this is the world that we live in and the industry that we work in. I've got more ammo for you here, dear. <laughs> Give it to me. <laughs> Give it to uh, me, Brett Paul. The previous hierarchy that I was in at this company, uh, they got in some compliance trouble for continuing to call uh, policies uh, plans and premium was called savings. Obviously, we know that that's not allowed. People were kicked out of the company for it, Good. lost their licenses for it. I know of them, right? Good. Uh, close to $8 million worth of chargebacks for these people. Uh, yep. Yep. Good. It was, it was pretty bad, but, uh, getting people to put, and you said 200, 250, 250. I was trained by some of these hierarchies that 600 is the lowest to go. Oh, because that's affordable for your average American family. Correct. And when asked the, Hey, what, what if they can't afford it? Oh, well, if it was going to charge back, it was going to charge back anyway. We'll just write the next one. So this industry just has that type of people and I've been around them. Wow. I didn't know that you knew so much bad stuff about the industry. Yeah. <laughs> when you dig deep, you find. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what that's what this podcast is all about. I, I really hope I'm not turning this into just bad mouthing the industry, but it's important that we raise this awareness. No, no, seriously. This is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. People need to know this, right? Because tell me where else you can go and find honest information about how the insurance industry works. You can. So that's the, the beauty of the You're an Asset podcast is supposed to be that, uncovering the actual crap that's going on um, on the back end because consumers don't have no idea. They have no idea. And agents who want to get their license have no idea what it's like. I had no idea. My mission with Power3 Financial and with this podcast is to find the good people and band them together and say, listen, I know that you can trust Paul. I know that you can trust Dustin Wiley, right? I know that you can trust certain people. We have to do something about it. That's what we're trying to accomplish. So no, it's perfect. I'd, I'd take it a level further and say that the worst part of this industry is just about continuing to sell life insurance as the silver bullet plan. And that bugs me the most. Like it's going to, it's a magical product that's going to save the, your life. So here's my philosophy on that. If I have to badmouth a product to sell it, I shouldn't be the one selling it. And there's entire companies out there, right? One rhymes with America who will create hit pieces on things and just try to promote a product. This is the only product I'm allowed to sell. And this is why it's the best thing for you. It doesn't make people in this industry better than snake oil salesmen then. No, it does not. You're not taking into account anyone's whole portfolio situation. My favorite guy to listen to this industry, shout out to him, David McKnight. He's been one of my best and favorite people to listen to. I'm only laughing because I'm like six and six now with David McKnight. Like everyone oh, really? loves David McKnight. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I like that 
he'll cover things about a strategy. Something needs to fit into an overall strategy, like tools mm-hmm. fit into a strategy, not the other way around, right? Most people selling IULs, whole life, whatever, well, or any product for that matter, even people selling A-share mutual funds, right? Like everybody yeah. is selling for the sake of fitting a strategy that they've somehow come across with and convoluting it with tools. The goal with the proper financial analysis when it shoots out a report of interest rates of what your entire portfolio is performing before retirement, what you expect after retirement. I have the power to now show somebody a realistic scenario to, hey, adding this tool to your portfolio might help. And that's exactly, that's exactly how cash value life insurance is supposed to be sold, right? I mean, something I want to kind of flip around to is this idea that not only is it insurance agents who are pushing one product and not thinking about the big picture, but it's also CPAs, right? They want to focus on one thing. Um, they want to focus on the 401k and your assets under management, and they don't want to include insurance in their strategy. And they should. They should be right. open to this idea that, hey, an IUL might be good for this client. I can't do it, but let me tell you about it and refer you to someone. And most of, most of the time, they just say, nah. So if you're only locked into one strategy and one tool, what are you going to do? You're going to try to fit a circle peg in a square box. Yeah. Right. Like, and that's that's what they're doing every time. Do you have um? Do you have a favorite book from David McKnight? David McKnight's main book, The Power of Zero, is probably my yeah. favorite. <laughs> but uh, he's got he's got a few others that I just haven't read yet into. Yeah. Okay. He actually has a Power of Zero certification. I might oh, okay. jump on that. There's a cost to it, yeah. but it's not something crazy. So I might I might jump on that. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look into that too. At least you get a chance to learn where somebody who wasn't biased into insurance before they entered into financial planning, you know, you get a feedback yeah, from yeah. the person. A lot of us fell into this industry, as I like to say it. Right? Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of us, unfortunately, stay at those types of companies that one tool, one strategy, one size fits all. A lot of times, you know, David McKnight says another thing that each IUL has to have a 0% loan provision built in. Yeah. Although it's not the most favorable loan provision for most cases. Is if you yeah. have that option, that loan provision is built in after year 10. Some of the, I have 10. year six. You have year six? Yeah. On I one carrier. Year six yet. Okay. We, we'll talk about that often. It's, I, good yeah. to know. Um, Brickbo, would you be willing to name drop anybody on social media who is not doing a good job, in your opinion? I'd rather not. No, you don't want to? Okay. I won't push you. I'd name drop hierarchies and companies and stuff like that right like but i wouldn't name drop specific people even if it was in the name of making sure that consumers don't fall for their bullshit let's just say the two people that i'm talking about you've already exposed amazing one of them is ryan rush huh right you've you've yeah. already you've already gone across them one of them and starts Depot? with d and d yeah yeah okay the other one that was a really big one the one that you even created some content with that was a that oh was michael henry yeah, I've seen their content and even David's called them out. Funny, you know, you know, David. he calls out McKnight. Dave McKnight's called out who? Uh, most of these people. No way. Yeah, if you Did- go to his YouTube, he actually calls these TikTok people out. I need to go check out Dave McKnight's YouTube. David does a good job of breaking down what was the technicality of that they said that's actually incorrect. He hasn't ever called out me, right? No, no. Do anything? No, Casey's not on there. Think. Um, his his general philosophy is basically. He doesn't like you and I don't either. He doesn't like you if you're the type of person who IUL is a solution to everything. So if you're that person, expect to be called out by someone like David McKnight. Okay, well, now I feel like David McKnight has probably watched my content. And if you happen to see this, David McKnight, hi, we love you. (laughs) We respect you so much. I read all your books. 
I even saw you in Vegas at a convention. I'm speaking directly to you, my friend. I'm going to have to cut this and make it a right. <laughs> make it a real. Let's see. Other than David McKnight, is there anybody online that you also really enjoy and, and think they they put out great content? No. No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, besides like people like yourself or people that I watch, uh, I will name drop some good. Yeah. Name drop some good people for me. Sammy Franco is an agent. Um, he's a good guy. Okay. Talked to him a couple of times. He's actually also allowed me to conduct some business in other industries like group planning and things like that. So okay. shout out to you, Sammy. <laughs> I'll give a shout out to Money Mythbuster, Matt Schloss. I've come across some of his stuff. It's I'm trying to get him on the show. Uh, this will be the second time. Money Mythbuster. I'm a big please. guy at these companies, you know, so he's he's busy, busy, busy. Uh, but I've actually seen his portal uh, of the business submitted and I've seen that the premiums matched, right? Exactly what he kind of <laughs> preaches. Who else is good? Uh, I feel like agents also need a good people to follow. Not like IUL specific people, but agents. Top shout out goes to a guy named Julian Dickinson. Okay. Um, his channel is Jay the Broker on TikTok. Awesome. He was a big pivotal reason for me to kind of see the light on these business practices okay. and uh, see how, hey, carrier structures matter when it comes to an IUL too. So he was able to open my door to other carriers and things like that. For sure. No, I love it. If you could make the world understand one thing about cash value, life insurance specifically, what would it be? I'm just going to copy David here. Understand that it's a part of your portfolio that will outperform certain assets, but not others. It is a necessity to have if you can have it. It'll outperform most of your fixed stuff throughout a long term. So if there's one thing that somebody needs to understand is take a look at it. It's one probably one of the most misunderstood asset classes. Understand that it can have a place in your portfolio. And if you do it right, it'll do a lot of things right for you. Amazing. Purple, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show, my friend. You're an asset. You're an asset. 100%. Like, <laughs> you got scared. Yeah, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> no, don't worry. Don't worry. You're you're an asset, 100%. I think that, honestly, it took having to have some struggles in the beginning, right, to get you where you are now, which is only going to make you and has made you a better agent, a better business owner. Big time. And it's a pleasure to know you and to have you on the show again. Thank you so much for being here. Would you please tell everyone where they can find you, the name of your business, how do they reach out to you, all that good stuff. My social media profiles are just my name, Prithpal Singh Narang. Um, all my stuff, all my links are inside of the bios for pretty much all of these. And that's probably the best way to just find me is Google my name. That feels nice to say. Google my name. I look yeah. forward to getting to chat with you in the future and continue our friendship and our relationship. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening and uh, for being a part of the show. This has been the You're an Asset podcast, where we find out who is an asset in the financial industry and who is just an ass. I'll see you next week. Bye. The You're an Asset podcast is not giving financial advice. We are not licensed financial advisors and our licensing is strictly in insurance products. The information that we talk about is specific to the products that we work with. We cannot guarantee that other agents will have the same product features that we discuss on the show.